0: Chapter 12. Of the Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hour of the Dragon. Chapter 12. The Fang of the Dragon. At dawn, Conan waded his horse across the shallows of the Alamein and struck the wide caravan trail which ran southeastward, and behind him, on the farther bank, Trocero sat his horse silently at the head of his steel-clad knights, with the crimson leopard of Poitain floating its long folds over him in the morning breeze. Silently they sat, those dark-haired men in shining steel, until the figure of their king had vanished in the blue of the distance that whitened toward sunrise. Conan rode a great black stallion, the gift of Trocero. He no longer wore the armor of Aquilonia. His harness proclaimed him a veteran of the free companies, who were of all races. His headpiece was a plain morion, dented and battered. The leather and mail-mesh of his hauberk were worn and shiny as if by many campaigns, and the scarlet cloak flowing carelessly from his mailed shoulders was tattered and stained. He looked the part of the hired fighting-man, who had known all vicissitudes of fortune, plunder and wealth one day, an empty purse and close-drawn belt the next. And more than looking the part, he felt the part—the awakening of old memories, the resurge of the wild, mad, glorious days of old, before his feet were set on the imperial path, when he was a wandering mercenary, roistering, brawling, guzzling, adventuring, with no thought for the morrow and no desire save sparkling ale, red lips, and a keen sword to swing on all the battlefields of the world. Unconsciously he reverted to the old ways. A new swagger became evident in his bearing, in the way he sat his horse. Half-forgotten oaths rose naturally to his lips and as he rode he hummed old songs that he had roared in chorus with his reckless companions in many a tavern and on many a dusty road or bloody field. It was an unquiet land through which he rode. The companies of cavalry which usually patrolled the river, alert for raids out of Poitain, were nowhere in evidence. Internal strife had left the borders unguarded. The long white road stretched bare from horizon to horizon. No laden camel trains or rumbling wagons or lowing herds moved along it now, only occasional groups of horsemen in leather and steel, hawk faced, hard eyed men, who kept together and rode warily. These swept Conan with their searching gaze, but rode on, for the solitary rider's harness promised no plunder, but only hard strokes. Villages lay in ashes and deserted, the fields and meadows idle. Only the boldest would ride the roads these days, and the native population had been decimated in the civil wars, and by raids from across the river. In more peaceful times the road was thronged with merchants riding Poitain to Massantia in Argos or back, but now these found it wiser to follow the road that led east through Poitain, and then turn south down across Argos. It was longer, but safer. Only an extremely reckless man would risk his life and goods on this road through Zingara. The southern horizon was fringed with flame by night, and in the day straggling pillars of smoke drifted upward. In the cities and plains to the south men were dying, thrones were toppling, and castles going up in flames. Conan felt the old tug of the professional fighting-man, to turn his horse and plunge into the fighting, the pillaging and the looting as in the days of old. Why should he toil to regain the rule of a people which had already forgotten him? Why chase a will-o'-the-wisp, why pursue a crown that was lost forever? ever? Why should he not seek forgetfulness, lose himself in the red tides of war and rapine that had engulfed him so often before? Could he not, indeed, carve out another kingdom for himself? The world was entering an age of iron, an age of war, an imperialistic ambition. Some strong man might well rise above the ruins of nations as a supreme conqueror. Why should it not be himself? So his familiar devil whispered in his ear, and the phantoms of his lawless and bloody past crowded upon him. But he did not turn aside. He rode onward, following a quest that grew dimmer and dimmer as he advanced, until sometimes it seemed that he pursued a dream that never was. He pushed the black stallion as hard as he dared, but the long white road lay bare before him, from horizon to horizon. It was a long start Zorethus had, but Conan rode steadily on, knowing that he was travelling faster than the burdened merchants could travel. And so he came to the castle of Count Valbroso, perched like a vulture's eyrie on a bare hill overlooking the road. Valbroso rode down with his men at arms, a lean dark man with glittering eyes and a predatory beak of a nose. He wore black plate armor and was followed by thirty spearmen, black-mustached hawks of the border wars, as avaricious and ruthless as himself. Of late the toll of the caravans had been slim, and Valboroso cursed the civil wars that stripped the roads of their fat traffic, even while he blessed them for the free hand they allowed him with his neighbors. He had not hoped much from the solitary rider he had glimpsed from his tower, but all was grist that came to his mill. With a practiced eye, he took in Conan's worn mail and dark scarred face, and his conclusions were the same as those of the riders who had passed the Cimmerian on the road—an empty purse and a ready blade. "'Who are you, knave?' he demanded. "'A mercenary, riding for Argos,' answered Conan what matter names." "'You are riding in the wrong direction for a free companion,' grunted Valbroso. "'Southward, the fighting is good, and also the plundering. Join my company. You won't go hungry. The road remains bare of fat merchants to strip, but I mean to take my rogues and fare southward to sell our swords to whichever side seems strongest.' Conan did not at once reply, knowing that if he refused outright he might be instantly attacked by Valbroso's men-at-arms. Before he could make up his mind, the Zengarin spoke again. "'You rogues of the free companies always know tricks to make men talk. I have a prisoner, the last merchant I caught by Mitra and the only one I've seen for a week, and the knave is stubborn. He has an iron box, the secret of which defies us and I've been unable to persuade him to open it. By Ishtar I thought I knew all the modes of persuasion there are. But perhaps you, as a veteran free companion, know some that I do not. At any rate, come with me and see what you may do." Valbroso's words instantly decided Conan. That sounded a great deal like Zorathus. Conan did not know the merchant but any man who was stubborn enough to try to traverse the Zingaran road in times like these, would very probably be stubborn enough to defy torture. He fell in beside Valbroso, and rode up the straggling road to the top of the hill where the gaunt castle stood. As a man-at-arms he should have ridden behind the count, but force of habit made him careless, and Valbroso paid no heed. Years of life on the border had taught the Count that the frontier is not the royal court. He was aware of the independence of the mercenaries, behind whose swords many a king had trodden the throne-path. There was a dry moat, half filled with debris in some places. They clattered across the drawbridge and through the arch of the gate. Behind them the portcullis fell with a sullen clang. They came into a bare courtyard, grown with straggling grass and with a well in the middle. Shacks for the men-at-arms straggled about the bailey wall, and women, slatternly or decked in gaudy finery, looked from the doors. Fighting men in rusty mail tossed dice on the flags under the arches. It was more like a bandit's hold than the castle of a nobleman. Valbroso dismounted and motioned Conan to follow him. They went through a doorway and along a vaulted corridor, where they were met by a scarred, hard-looking man in mail descending a stone staircase, evidently the captain of the guard. "'How, Beloso,' quoth Valbroso, "'has he spoken?' "'He is stubborn,' muttered Beloso, shooting a glance of suspicion at Conan. Valbroso ripped out an oath and stamped furiously up the winding stair, followed by Conan and the captain. As they mounted, the groans of a man in mortal agony became audible. Valbroso's torture-room was high above the court, instead of in a dungeon below. In that chamber, where a gaunt, hairy beast of a man in leather breeks, squatted gnawing a beef-bone voraciously, stood the machines of torture—racks, boots, hooks, and all the implements that the human mind devises to tear flesh, break bones, and rend and rupture veins and ligaments. On a rack a man was stretched naked, and a glance told Conan that he was dying. The unnatural elongation of his limbs and body told of unhinged joints and unnameable ruptures. He was a dark man, with an intelligent, aquiline face and quick, dark eyes. They were glazed and bloodshot now with pain, and the dew of agony glistened on his face. His lips were drawn back from blackened gums. There is the box! Viciously Valbroso kicked a small but heavy iron chest that stood on the floor nearby. It was intricately carved, with tiny skulls and writhing dragons curiously intertwined, but Conan saw no catch or hasp that might serve to unlock the lid. The marks of fire, of axe and sledge and chisel showed on it but as scratches. "'This is the dog's treasure-box,' said Valbroso angrily. All men of the South know of Zarethus and his iron chest. Mitra knows what is in it, but he will not give up its secret. Zarethus? It was true then. The man he sought lay before him. Conan's heart beat suffocatingly as he leaned over the writhing form, though he exhibited no evidence of his painful eagerness. Ease those ropes, knave, he ordered the torturer harshly, and Valbroso and his captain stared. In the forgetfulness of the moment Conan had used his imperial tone, and the brood and leather instinctively obeyed the knife-edge of command in that voice. He eased away gradually, for else the slackening of the ropes had been as great a torment to the torn joints as further stretching. Catching up a vessel of wine that stood near by, Conan placed the rim to the wretch's lips. Zorethus gulped spasmodically, the liquid slopping over on his heavy breast. Into the bloodshot eyes came a gleam of recognition, and the froth-smeared lips parted. From them issued a racking whimper in the Cothic tongue. "'Is this death, then? Is the long agony ended? For this is King Conan, who died at Valkia, and I am among the dead.' "'You are not dead,' said Conan. "'But you're dying. You'll be tortured no more. I'll see to that.' but I can't help you further. Yet, before you die, tell me how to open your iron box.' "'My iron box!' mumbled Xerathus in delirious disjointed phrases. "'The chest forged in unholy fires among the flaming mountains of croatia the metal no chisel can cut. How many treasures has it borne across the width and the breadth of the world, but no such treasure as it now holds.' Tell me how to open it," urged Conan. "'It can do you no good, and it may aid me.' "'Aye, you are, Conan,' muttered the Cathian. "'I have seen you sitting on your throne in the great public hall of Tarantia, with your crown on your head and the scepter in your hand. But you are dead, you died at Valkia, and so I know my own end is at hand.' "'What does the dog say?' demanded Velbroso impatiently, not understanding Cothic. Will he tell us how to open the box? As if the voice roused a spark of life in the twisted breast, Zarethus rolled his bloodshot eyes toward the speaker. Only Velbroso will I tell, he gasped in Zangarin. Death is upon me. Lean close to me, Valbroso. The Count did so, his dark face lit with avarice. Behind him, his Saturn and Captain Beloso crowded closer. "'Press the seven skulls on the rim, one after another,' gasped Sarethus. "'Press, then, the head of the dragon that rise across the lid. Then press the sphere in the dragon's claws. That will release the secret catch.' "'Quick, the box!' cried Valbroso with an oath. Conan lifted it and set it on a dais, and Valbroso shouldered him aside. "'Let me open it!' cried Beloso, starting forward. Valbroso cursed him back, his greed blazing in his black eyes. "'None but me shall open it!' he cried. Conan, whose hand had instinctively gone to his hilt, glanced at Zarathus. The man's eyes were glazed and bloodshot, but they were fixed on Valbroso with burning intensity. And was there the shadow of a grim, twisted smile on the dying man's lips? Not until the merchant knew he was dying had he given up the secret. Conan turned to watch Valbroso, even as the dying man watched him. Along the rim of the lid seven skulls were carved among intertwining branches of strange trees. An inlaid dragon writhed its way across the top of the lid amid ornate arabesques. Valbroso pressed the skulls in fumbling haste, and as he jammed his thumb down on the carved head of the dragon, he swore sharply and snatched his hand away, shaking it in irritation. A sharp point on the carvings, he snarled. I've pricked my thumb. He pressed the gold ball clutched in the dragon's talons, and the lid flew abruptly open. Their eyes were dazzled by a golden flame it seemed to their dazed minds that the carven box was full of glowing fire that spilled over the rim and dripped through the air in quivering flakes. Peloso cried out and Valbroso sucked in his breath. Conan stood speechless, his brain snared by the blaze. Mitra, what a jewel! Valbroso's hand dived into the chest, came out with a great pulsing crimson sphere that filled the room with a lambent glow. In its glare, Valbroso looked like a corpse, and the dying man on the loosened rack laughed wildly and suddenly. "'Fool!' he screamed. "'The jewel is yours. I give you death with it. The scratch on your thumb. Look at the dragon's head, Valbroso!' They all wheeled, stared. Something tiny and dully gleaming stood up from the gaping, carved mouth. "'The dragon's fang!' shrieked zarethus steeped in the venom of the black Stygian scorpion! Fool, fool to open the box of zarethus with your naked hand! Death, you are a dead man now! And with bloody foam on his lips he died. Valbroso staggered, crying out, Ah, Mitra, I burn! He shrieked. My veins race with liquid fire! My joints are bursting asunder! Death! "'Death!' And he reeled and crashed headlong. There was an instant of awful convulsions, in which the limbs were twisted into hideous and unnatural positions, and then in that posture the man froze, his glassy eyes staring sightlessly upward, his lips drawn back from blackened gums. "'Dead!' muttered Beloso, with madness in his eyes. And then he moved. Conan was caught off guard. His eyes dazzled, his brain dazed by the blaze of the great gem. He did not realize Beloso's intention until something crashed with terrible force upon his helmet. The glow of the jewel was splashed with redder flame, and he went to his knees under the blow. He heard a rush of feet, a bellow of ox-like agony. He was stunned, but not wholly senseless, and realized that Beloso had caught up the iron box and crashed it down on his head as he stooped. Only his bassinet had saved his skull. He staggered up, drawing his sword, trying to shake the dimness out of his eyes. The room swam to his dizzy gaze. But the door was open and fleet footsteps were dwindling down the winding stair. On the floor the brutish torturer was gasping out his life with a great gash under his breast. And the heart of Ariman was gone. Conan reeled out of the chamber, sword in hand blood streaming down his face from under his bergonette. He ran drunkenly down the steps, hearing a clang of steel in the courtyard below, shouts, then the frantic drum of hoofs. Rushing into the bailey he saw the men-at-arms milling about confusedly, while women screeched. The postern gate stood open and a soldier lay across his pike with his head split. Horses, still bridled and saddled, ran neighing about the court. Conan's black stallion among them. "'He's mad!' howled a woman, wringing her hands as she rushed brainlessly about. "'He came out of the castle like a mad dog, hewing right and left. Beloso's mad! Where's Lord Valbroso?' "'Which way did he go?' roared Conan. All turned and stared at the stranger's blood-stained face and naked sword. "'Through the postern!' shrilled a woman, pointing eastward, and another bawled. Who is this rogue?" "'Beloso has killed Valbroso!' yelled Conan, leaping and seizing the stallion's mane, as the men-at-arms advanced uncertainly on him. A wild outcry burst forth at his news, but their reaction was exactly as he had anticipated. Instead of closing the gates to take him prisoner, or pursuing the fleeing slayer to avenge their lord, they were thrown into even greater confusion by his words. Wolves bound together only by fear of Valbroso, they owed no allegiance to the castle or to each other. Swords began to clash in the courtyard, and women screamed. And in the midst of it all none noticed Conan as he shot through the postern gate and thundered down the hill. The wide plain spread before him, and beyond the hill the caravan road divided. One branch ran south, the other east and on the eastern road he saw another rider, bending low and spurring hard. The plain swam to Conan's gaze, the sunlight was a thick red haze and he reeled in his saddle, grasping the flowing mane with his hand. Blood rained on his mail, but grimly he urged the stallion on. Behind him, smoke began to pour out of the castle on the hill where the Count's body lay forgotten and unheeded beside that of his prisoner. The sun was setting, against a lurid red sky the two black figures fled. The stallion was not fresh, but neither was the horse ridden by Beloso. But the great beast responded mightily, calling on deep reservoirs of reserve vitality. Why the Zingaran fled from one pursuer, Conan did not tax his bruised brain to guess. Perhaps unreasoning panic rode Beloso, born of the madness that lurked in that blazing jewel. The sun was gone, the white road was a dim glimmer through a ghostly twilight fading into purple gloom far ahead of him. The stallion panted, laboring hard. The country was changing in the gathering dusk. Bare plains gave way to clumps of oaks and alders. Low hills mounted up in the distance. Stars began to blink out. The stallion gasped and reeled in his course but ahead rose a dense wood that stretched to the hills on the horizon, and between it and himself Conan glimpsed the dim form of the fugitive. He urged on the distressed stallion, for he saw that he was overtaking his prey, yard by yard. Above the pound of the hoofs a strange cry rose from the shadows, but neither pursuer nor pursued gave heed. As they swept in under the branches that overhung the road, they were almost side by side. A fierce cry rose from Conan's lips as his sword went up, a pale oval of a face was turned toward him, a sword gleamed in a half-seen hand, and Beloso echoed the cry. And then the weary stallion, with a lurch and a groan, missed his footing in the shadows, and went heels overhead, hurling his dazed rider from the saddle. Conan's throbbing head crashed against a stone, and the stars were blotted out in a thicker night. How long Conan lay senseless he never knew. His first sensation of returning consciousness was that of being dragged by one arm over rough and stony ground and through dense underbrush. Then he was thrown carelessly down, and perhaps the jolt brought back his senses. His helmet was gone. His head ached abominably, he felt a qualm of nausea, and blood was clotted thickly among his black locks. But with the vitality of a wild thing life and consciousness surged back into him, and he became aware of his surroundings. A broad red moon was shining through the trees, by which he knew that it was long after midnight. He had lain senseless for hours, long enough to have recovered from that terrible blow Beloso had dealt him as well as the fall which had rendered him senseless. His brain felt clearer than it had felt during that mad ride after the fugitive. He was not lying beside the white road. He noticed with a start of surprise, as his surroundings began to record themselves on his perceptions. The road was nowhere in sight. He lay on the grassy earth, in a small glade hemmed in by a black wall of tree-stems and tangled branches. His face and hands were scratched and lacerated, as if he had been dragged through brambles. Shifting his body, he looked about him. And then he started violently. Something was squatting over him. At first Conan doubted his consciousness, thought it was but a figment of delirium. Surely it could not be real, that strange, motionless gray being that squatted on its haunches and stared down at him with unblinking, soulless eyes. Conan lay and stared, half expecting it to vanish like a figure of a dream. And then a chill of recollection crept along his spine. Half-forgotten memory surged back, of grisly tales whispered of the shapes that haunted these uninhabited forests at the foot of the hills that marked the Zengaran-Argossian border. Ghouls, men called them, eaters of human flesh, spawn of darkness, children of unholy matings of a lost and forgotten race with the demons of the underworld. Somewhere in these primitive forests were the ruins of an ancient, accursed city, men whispered and among its tombs slunk gray, anthropomorphic shadows. Conan shuddered strongly. He lay staring at the malformed head that rose dimly above him, and cautiously he extended a hand toward the sword at his hip. With a horrible cry that the man involuntarily echoed, the monster was at his throat. Conan threw up his right arm, and the dog-like jaws closed on it, driving the male lynx into the hard flesh. The misshapen yet manlike hands clutched for his throat, but he evaded them with a heave and a roll of his whole body, at the same time drawing his dagger with his left hand. They tumbled over and over on the grass, smiting and tearing. The muscles coiling under that gray, corpse-like skin were stringy and hard as steel wires, exceeding the strength of a man. But Conan's thews were iron, too and his mail saved him from the gnashing fangs and ripping claws long enough for him to drive his dagger again and again and again. The horrible vitality of the semi-human monstrosity seemed inexhaustible, and the king's skin crawled at the feel of that slick, clammy flesh. He put all his loathing and savage revulsion behind the plunging blade, and suddenly the monster heaved up convulsively beneath him as the point found its grisly heart and then lay still. Conan rose, shaken with nausea. He stood in the center of the glade uncertainly, sword in one hand and dagger in the other. He had not lost his instinctive sense of direction, as far as the points of the compass were concerned, but he did not know in which direction the road lay. He had no way of knowing in which direction the ghoul had dragged him. Conan glared at the silent, black, moon-dappled woods which ringed him, and he felt cold moisture beat his flesh. He was without a horse and lost in these haunted woods, and that staring, deformed thing at his feet was a mute evidence of the horrors that lurked in the forest. He stood almost holding his breath in his painful intensity straining his ears for some crack of a twig or rustle of grass. When a sound did come he started violently. Suddenly out of the night air broke the scream of a terrified horse. His stallion. There were panthers in the wood, or ghouls ate beasts as well as men. He broke savagely through the brush in the direction of the sound, whistling shrilly as he ran, his fear drowned in berserk rage. If his horse was killed, there went his last chance of following Beloso and recovering the jewel. Again the stallion screamed with fear and fury, somewhere nearer. There was a sound of lashing heels and something that was struck heavily and gave way. Conan burst out into the wide white road without warning, and saw the stallion plunging and rearing in the moonlight, his ears laid back, his eyes and teeth flashing wickedly. He lashed out with his heels at a slinking shadow that ducked and bobbed about him. And then about Conan other shadows moved, gray, furtive shadows that closed in on all sides. A hideous charnel-house scent reeked up in the night air. With a curse the king hewed right and left with his broadsword, thrust and ripped with his dagger. Dripping fangs flashed in the moonlight, foul paws caught at him. But he hacked his way through to the stallion, caught the rein, leapt into the saddle. His sword rose and fell, a frosty arc in the moonlight, showering blood as it split misshapen heads, clove shambling bodies. The stallion reared, biting and kicking. They burst through and thundered down the road. On either hand, for a short space, flitted gray, abhorrent shadows. Then these fell behind, and Conan, topping a wooded crest, saw a vast expanse of bare slopes sweeping up and away before him. End of chapter 12